Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, July 20th, we are studying Judges chapter 7, verse 24, through chapter 8, verse 21. After the Lord delivers Midian into the hand of Gideon and his army of 300 men, Gideon calls out the men of Israel to pursue, to capture, and to kill the princes and kings of Midian. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jeff Hemmer. Pastor Hemmer serves at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois. Pastor Hemmer, welcome back to Sharper Iron. It's great to be with you, Pastor Apple. As we get started this morning, Pastor Hemmer, let's talk a little context. We are toward the end of the story of Gideon. We've come through the the pretty familiar part, if you have if you went to Sunday school, you've probably heard at least parts of what we've read already concerning Gideon in chapters 6 and 7. So there's the context. What do we need to know from, from that account that's leading into what we've got for today? Well, uh, things with Gideon really start off on a high note. So God calls him. Um, he, he confesses his own weakness and his inability to do what God calls him to, but then because of the signs God gives to him, he is confirmed in the call. Um, he, he, of course, has this moment of um, obeying the first commandment brilliantly. He tears down his own father's uh, altar to Baal and the Asherah pole. So this, this will upset uh, all the people. He does it overnight, and then everyone is upset. They finally find out that Gideon is the one who, who tore them down. And his father will stand up for him and say, if Baal is real, then let Baal be the one who defends his honor for his altar, which has been torn down. And so this, this of course, is in the context is that the Midians are oppressing the people of Israel. And the reason that God has allowed the Midianites to oppress the people of Israel is that they they have begun worshiping the false gods of the people around them. And this, this really, if we take a 30,000-foot view um, at the history of God's people, they, they are either looking forward to God fulfilling his promise to settle them in the land that he promised to Abraham and to his descendants, and and then they're, they're grumbling against God that he seems faithless in not fulfilling those promises, or God has made good on those promises, he's brought them into the land, and then their faith in God begins to wane, and they begin worshiping the false gods uh, along with the, the people around them. They begin joining in the, the worship uh, of all the Canaanites and all the other tribes who previously occupied that land. So that's why God allows the, the Midianites to oppress the people and to uh, plunder them and, and to rob their food. But then he raises up Gideon when his people cry out to him. He raises up Gideon to be the deliverer. And so then you have Gideon's call and Gideon's faithfulness in tearing down the altar 
Um, it signifies that he will trust in, in God himself. And then you have the, the story about how, well, Gideon, I guess, needs one more confirmation. And then you have the story of the fleece um, where he sort of puts God to the test um, to see whether God's promises are, are true, whether God's word is uh, something that he can trust in or not. And then after the, uh, the two nights with the fleece, God does what Gideon asks of him, then Gideon is willing to go into battle on the Lord's terms. So he takes his army of, of 32,000 men and reduces it down to 300 of them. And with those 300 men, he defeats the Midianites. And so you have this, this uh, triumphant story where the people don't even uh, fight the Midianites on their own. Um, but the Midianites end up fighting themselves, and then they're fleeing away, and God has made good on the promise to deliver his people from the hand of the Midianites. And then that brings us to about where we begin the text uh, this morning. Yeah, the Gideon, he has been characterized by his timidity so far. He's been faithful within that. He he has believed the promises. He's asked for those signs multiple times, as you said, a bit of testing God. That's when, when we looked at that a, a few, I guess it was last week, we looked at that and, and talked about the matter of Gideon testing God in that. And so he's been timid. He's been, uh, we've also compared him to the, the doubting Thomas a bit of the Old Testament. And, and so I, I wonder, it seems that the what we get today, though, in terms of the way that his character shows forth, he's not so timid anymore. Is is there a is there a growth within Gideon? Do you think? Well, I think so, and I think that's what we'll see in the trajectory of, of this text. Is that Gideon has uh, has lost a lot of that timidity. He sees that that God has made him capable of conquering the Midianites, and so he keeps pursuing the Midianite kings, um, and, and capturing them and eventually killing them. And it seems like he'll, he'll even, as we work our way through the text, he'll even sort of um, carry out some of that zeal um, and the being a warrior, even against his fellow Israelites who refuse to give him some food. And then by the end of our text, Gideon has triumphed over these kings but it, it really shines the spotlight a lot more on Gideon and less on the Lord who used Gideon as his instrument, such that the people will even want to make Gideon their king thereafter. Um, right after our text, they'll ask Gideon to rule over us, you and your family, um, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon, at least for the moment, will deflect their adoration of him, but then he'll still create this, uh, this ephod out of uh, uh, a massive quantity of gold, and then uh, as well as the, the fabrics woven together, and he will allow the people to worship this ephod, which is kind of a sign of Gideon, and so it even, uh, the, the author records, it even becomes a snare to Gideon and to his family. So God makes good on his promise to deliver the people from the Midianites, but Gideon, it seems, lets a lot of the success 
go to his own head. And so we watch this, this sort of slow fall of Gideon all throughout our text that we'll uh, take up this morning. And then the next, uh, the next segment will be about how low Gideon descends, where this false worship now sort of in the image of Gideon will take the place, again, of the worship of the one true triune God, which is the, the zeal for which is what originally occupies Gideon, uh, but then he loses it by the end of mm. his time as a judge, it seems. Right. It, it seems that, I mean, if, if you could criticize Gideon for being a bit too timid at the beginning of his account, and then moving toward faithfulness, and the, the high point of that faithfulness, it seems, is either maybe the very beginning of our text or the, the very end of the previous text, but then he, it's it's like he swings too far from from timidity to a uh, a zeal that goes beyond a zeal for the Lord and becomes a a zeal for himself, for his own power, for his own glory, perhaps. And so we'll we'll see how that plays out. Maybe we can revisit that toward the end, but we'll see how that plays out in the text for today. So let's let's start reading here in Judges chapter seven, beginning at verse twenty four, and then moving into chapter eight as well. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them, as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. Okay, we'll, we'll pause there, Pastor Hammer. There's the So again, this is coming off of the battle in which the Lord, and it really wasn't much of a battle in terms of Israel versus Midian. The Lord really put Midian into a panic, and Midian end up, ended up slaughtering themselves, and Gideon and his 300 men were mostly just watching, and then they began to pursue those who survived and, and were fleeing. And that's kind of where we're picking up the account, is where Gideon now is going to send more men, more than his 300, after those who are fleeing. Yeah, absolutely. And so there's the, uh, the complaint, first of all, um, that, that arises from the, uh, the men of Ephraim, and, and this after he invites them to participate in sort of the, the tail end of the battle. Join with me in, in pursuing these Midianites. Reclaim uh, the waters, the Jordan, as far as Beit Barah. And the men of Ephraim do this. They capture the kings. But then they, they themselves are upset that Gideon and his tribe have been the ones to obtain glory, it seems, uh, for their conquering the Midians. And they, uh, they accused him fiercely, the, uh, the text records. And then he plays a, a little bit of, uh, uh, well, it, it's, uh, it's a little bit of gamesmanship. He says, what have I done in comparison with you? 
the, the gleaning, the leftover of the harvest that the uh, Ephraimites are able to pick up will always be better than the harvest of Abeazer, which is uh, a reference to his own tribe. So God has given you the princes, and, and I have been unable to do anything in comparison with that. And so he deflects the glory away from himself and, and is allowing even the Ephraimites here to, in their own minds, have a bigger share of the glory than, than Gideon, for they, they actually come back with, um, with some of the princes of, of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. So it's, uh, it's tactful. He demonstrates a kind of wisdom here um, that he, uh, he pays them this compliment, probably undeserved, um, but it, uh, it, it retains a unity between Gideon's tribe and uh, the tribe of Ephraim. So I mean, let, let's talk a little bit that that interaction between Gideon and the men of Ephraim, and I I, I do think so. I, I don't want to I don't want to be too critical of Gideon if it's not warranted, but but maybe let, let's consider the way that the interaction goes. So Ephraim comes and and they are very concerned with it seems this matter of glory. They wanted some of the they wanted a piece of the action when it came to the fight against Midian, and Gideon in had left them out of the main event. He calls them in to kind of wipe up the leftovers, but they've they've been left out of that main event. So they complain to Gideon. And Gideon, I mean, sure, I, I, I can appreciate the the tact, the wisdom that he shows. It seems a very diplomatic way of speaking. You know, he's like, look, you you guys, you got the princes, and what have I done in comparison with that? Which I think is is in fact true. What has Gideon done in comparison with that? But the the point I, I guess I want to talk a little bit about is Who's left out of all of this? Well, it's it's the Lord. Gideon doesn't, and, and again, I mean, I don't want to be unfair to Gideon here, but Gideon doesn't ever say to the people of Ephraim, look, I didn't win my victory. That was the Lord's doing, and you didn't either. This is all the Lord's hand. I mean, I, I guess Gideon leaves everything at that political level, and never does anything theological with it. And again, I don't want to downplay the the earthly wisdom that he shows, but at the same time, I wonder if maybe there's just a, a bit of a hint here of some of the the theological decay that we're going to see in Gideon that's coming up later. What do you think? I think you're right. I think you see here a, a shift away from giving glory to the Lord, ascribing him credit for the victory, and because the Ephraimites are so interested in glory, even though Gideon is able to assuage their jealousy for a moment and convince them that they, in the moment, have, have greater glory. I think that it seems to be the shift here in the text where suddenly that idea of, of man receiving credit for the works that God has wrought through him seems to enter into Gideon's thinking. And I think, I think you're uh, fairly perceptive to, to locate that here in the text. He is, right, he is tactful, uh, very diplomatic, solves the immediate problem, but perhaps not in the most theologically precise way. And that seems to have sort of wormed its way into his thinking and will play out in the way that he seems to pursue Gideon's glory as, as the rest of this narrative will unfold. Hmm. I, I like the way you phrase it, that it, it worms, his, worms its way into his thinking. 
because this thought of taking credit for something that God has done tends to do that in all of our thinking. We, it, our glory, our desire for glory worms its way into our thinking, and, and whether we meant to or not, whether Gideon meant to or not, it, it seems that it does so here. And, and I think we still see this tendency throughout sinful humanity, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think so. I think that's always the, the tendency of, of fallen man, is as soon as things start going well for us, we tend to ascribe that to ourselves. And as soon as things start going poorly for us, then, then we're willing to, to grumble and complain against God for those things. Hmm. And I think this, to go back to what, what we were saying at the very beginning, I think this fits in the pattern of the people of Israel very well. When, when things go well for them, when God is faithful to his promises, it's easy for their faith to be dislocated from being placed in the one true God and for them to invite, you know, faith in all the false gods of, of the Canaanites alongside their faith in the one true God. And, and when things are going poorly, when it seems like God is not fulfilling his promises, then, then again, they're, they're quick to blame God for all of that. And, and it, I mean, it really should be the exact opposite of that, that when things right. are going poorly for us, we should be pointing the fingers at ourselves, and when things are going well for us, we should be giving all praise and honor to God alone. Right, absolutely. In, in both practical, daily bread kind of matters, um, and, and also, well, this, of course, is how Lutherans answer the, the question of, of salvation as well. When, when someone is saved— the credit rightly goes to God, and when someone is damned, the blame rightly falls on him. That's, that's the way things should be, both in matters of salvation and in temporal matters, daily bread kinds of affairs. But that's not usually how, how things work in the mind of a sinful man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so we see that here with, with Gideon, the, the hint of the beginning of where this account is going to lead us. Let's read a little bit farther here on this side of the break and and see what happens next. So we're in Judges 8 now, uh, verse 4. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Sukkoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Sukkoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmina already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmina into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the man of Sukkoth had answered him. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. So now again, here's, here's Gideon. He's continuing to pursue the Midianites. Two of the princes have been captured and killed. Now he's going after two kings, Zeba and Zalmina, these other kings who are still running away. And on his way, he's, he's, he hasn't left Israel per se, but he's, he's on his way out. He's crossed the Jordan. He's pursuing these enemies, and he comes to some folks who I think should be friendly, he asks for help, but they don't give it to him. Take us into this interaction, Pastor Hemmer. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. So they are uh, Israelites, as, as he is, uh, descendants of, of Abraham, um, the men both of Sukkoth and Penuel, and 
so he he sort of expects um, a friendly relationship from them, and because he is the one delivering them from the the Midianite oppression, and he's in the midst of pursuing their kings, he thinks that they should support him along the way. And the answer he gets from both the people of Sukkoth and Penuel is that until he's actually been successful over the kings of Midian, they will uh, they will not help him. They will not uh, provide for him um, bread, food, lodging. Um, that's what he asks for. Give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. So he wants... Um, food and shelter for his soldiers as he pursues the kings of Midian. But you do get a little hint uh, of whatever Gideon's remaining faithfulness is mm. before his, his zeal simply to capture these kings and to defend the honor of his own name completely overwhelms him. Um, in verse 7, at least he says to the officials of Sukkoth, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, then I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. So this is an, an unnecessary threat to them. It seems like he, he takes their lack of provision personally, and here again you can probably see in that uh, a Gideon relying on himself to procure bread, uh, literal daily bread for himself and his soldiers, and, and when he is denied that, instead of turning to the Lord and entrusting the, the health and well-being of his soldiers to the Lord, whose soldiers they truly are and not, not really his, he sort of doubles down on the Gideon as deliverer motif and, and has to follow up his his uh, zeal to provide for his soldiers with, with threats against his, uh, his own countrymen. Hmm. That if they, will, if they will not provide for him, then he says to the officials in Sukkoth, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness, which is really a, 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 a graphic threat. To the men of Penuel, he simply uh, threatens to tear down this tower um, some some sort of fortress or infrastructure that it seems like they are, are trusting in or, or by which they have made a name for themselves. So the threats seem not to be exactly equal, uh, though we'll see in the end, it, it seems like he carries out the exact same uh, lethal vengeance against both the, the men of Penuel and the officials of Sukkoth. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, again, you, you see how... Gideon's faithfulness, if, if it had peaked earlier, it, it does seem to be waning here, and he's forgetting the faithfulness of the Lord and beginning to trust in himself in, in a couple of ways. I think the one of the things that stands out to me is the mention, or the threat, that Gideon makes against the, the folks in Sukkoth, that he specifically says he's going to flail their flesh with thorns and with briars. And the mention of thorns and briars in the scriptures in my mind, always brings up the curse that Adam brought upon the earth, that thorns and thistles would come forth. And and to see Gideon use it here 
again, I mean, it seems to be at least a hint by the by the author that look, sin is is rearing its ugly head again, and now it's doing so not just with Israelites against others, but it's it's doing so within the own people with the within the very people of God. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's very uh, insightful that he he uses the uh, some of the curse, the results of the fall, as the means by which he will exact Gideon's revenge against his uh, uh, his fellow Israelites. Mm-hmm. I mean, where I guess, and we we only got a couple minutes here before the break, Pastor Himmer. But but where how do we know, where do we see Gideon go too far? Because on the one hand, these are Israelites who should know better and who should support. So, I mean, Gideon has a, a grievance against them in the sense that they're not following after what the Lord would, would have them do. They're not participating in the victory that the Lord would give. How, how do we see Gideon go too—where f- does he cross that line, I guess? Well, I think he crosses the line when he takes vengeance into his own hands. So he should, he should have commended the punishment of his adversaries— to the Lord, and entrusted the well-being of his soldiers to the Lord, um, but instead he wants to he wants to be uh, their provider of daily bread, his soldiers, and he wants to be the instrument of wrath against these uh, Israelites who refuse to help him and his soldiers out. When, I mean, God could have used Gideon as the instrument of both providing daily bread and also wrath against those who stand in his way but that's not part of not part of what god has raised gideon up for he's raised gideon up for the purpose of delivering his people from the oppression of the midianites and and nowhere has god empowered him or called him to obliterate even uh even fellow israelites in in the pursuit of the midianites in being the instrument to deliver the people of israel from the midianites Gideon slips, stumbles, and and becomes the instrument to, well, really, uh, to sort of make a name for himself, to ensure that God's promises are carried out. He's got to be the one to enact vengeance, to carry out punishment against those who are hindering his, uh, his carrying out the pursuit of the Midianites. Yeah, he, he takes it past what God has given him to do. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFO. Going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, July 20th, and we are studying Judges chapter 7, verse 24, through chapter 8, verse 21, with Pastor Jeff Hemmer. He's the pastor at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois. Pastor Hemmer, prior to the break, we looked at Gideon 
involving the men of Ephraim, his diplomatic speech to them, and yet perhaps some hints of forgetting the Lord's role in all of this. We've seen now he continues to pursue the kings of Midian, and when asking for help from his own people, it seems that he he begins to take things a bit too far. He begins to look for vengeance within himself rather than from the Lord, to look not to, to place himself and his soldiers into the Lord's care, but to try to take that care upon himself. Now the text continues. We're picking up in verse 10 here in Judges chapter 8 as Gideon continues his pursuit. Now Ziba and Zalmana were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noba and Jagbaha, and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Ziba and Zalmana fled, and he pursued them, and captured the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmana, and he threw all the army into a panic. We'll pause there. That's the actual account of Gideon capturing the kings. He does not kill them yet. So, Pastor Hemmer, one of the things that, that we see in this text, we already knew that the Midianite army was large, given what we'd read in chapter 7. Here we get to see the full extent of the army. When you add those numbers together, those who were still alive and those who had already died, that's 135,000 men that the Lord had defeated with only 300. That's that's just staggering to see. Right. So that's a, a 450 to 1 ratio of the soldiers of the Midianites to the soldiers uh, in Gideon's army, the 300 who remain, after God decided that the odds were were too skewed uh, in favor of the people believing that maybe they defeated the Midianites by their own power. And so he, he reduces it down to just this ridiculous number. Every man, uh, if it were up to them, would have to defeat 450 Midianite soldiers in order for them to think, we, we really did a great job. It's all on us. So just staggering odds against them. And yet they prevail because it is the Lord who fights for them. And they prevail in a, in a most outlandish way. And so here you see 120,000 uh, of the Midianites who drew the sword have fallen and, and have fallen by their own swords. And now 15,000 of them remain. Now, 15,000 versus 300 is still staggering odds, stacked in favor, it would seem, of the Midianites. We, we already know that that's not stacked in favor of the Midianites because the Lord is fighting on Israel's side. So, But, but those are the, the numbers still, which doesn't look good for Israel. This account gives us a, a little bit. You don't get the same detail that you did in chapter 7 concerning the the main event, but still it seems that the victory belongs to the Lord. It's not due to any particular military skill on Gideon's part here either. Right. There's there's no way that we—I mean, we're not given the uh, the details of the battle, but the author of the of this history will still not let us— uh, Give, give glory, undue glory, to, to Gideon or to the fighting prowess of these men. All that we're told is that uh, the kings flee, um, and Gideon pursues them and captures them. And they, they find them 
in in the midst of tent dwellers, um, the uh, the study Bible wants to make a uh, a note of that that they're living among the tents. They feel secure. They're not expecting any kind of attack. They're they're back in their own territory, um, and still they do have fifteen thousand soldiers with them. So the uh, what you can probably assume is that they they are again caught off guard, caught by surprise, and so the kings are ill-equipped to fight, and and so they flee, but, but Gideon pursues them and, and finally captures them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pastor Amber, we, we were talking earlier, just, just before the—during the break, a little bit about—much of this is, is a narrative. There's not a ton of explicit theology here, and so we, we try not to be too hard on Gideon or, or too soft on him either. One of the things that, that I wonder about, you know, he's, he is going and he's pursuing those who are running away. And, and I, I wonder if, if that gives, just to, to shed a bit of a positive light on this account, perhaps, is that we, we see a picture here that the Lord, when he defeats his enemies, the Lord does not leave the stragglers behind. He's not going to give a halfway victory of sorts, but he's going to finish the job. He's going to complete the victory so that the threat to his people is is finished. Now, again, that's not to say that Gideon doesn't take it too far at times, but perhaps we could say that positively of this narrative, that we do see the Lord finishing the job and giving his people the full victory, so to speak. Which is what he called them to do when he brought them into the land of Canaan to begin with. He called for them to completely eradicate those who occupied the land, uh, to, to let none of them remain, and certainly, no matter what you do, do not intermarry with any of them, because if you do, then you will give yourselves over to, to the worship of, of their gods as well. So I think that that's true. God does nothing in, in half measures, and these who have oppressed his people will be... and and not just oppressed, but attacked, um, and who have been his instruments to carry out his, his work of wrath, nevertheless will be pursued until the very last of them. In a sense, you get kind of uh, an eschatological uh, picture here that in the very end, no one who has set himself up as an enemy of the Lord and his church will succeed. Eventually, all of God's enemies, all the enemies of his church, who therefore are, are truly enemies of God, are eventually all defeated and all given over to the devil and consigned with him into the place prepared for him and his angels, not, not prepared for, in, in the language of Jesus, uh, in the parable of the sheep and the goats, hell is never prepared for any person, but, but those who set themselves up against God determined that, that that's what they prefer, to be with the devil and his angels, sort of isolated eternally from the goodness of God. Eventually, all the enemies of the Lord and his church are overthrown. So persecution may seem like the norm for right now, what the church has to endure until the day of Jesus' return. But eventually, no one who in this life has set himself up as an adversary of the Lord and his church will succeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even even if we see the Lord accomplish that through sinful men, 
in this age, we see the picture of that, it is still the Lord doing that. He's still giving that victory. And I think you're right to to point us toward the last day, the picture that we have here of the Lord defeating his enemies in full. And though they may seem to succeed right now, that day is coming when the Lord will deliver that complete victory to his people. There will be no more danger. Now, the account continues here in Judges chapter 8. So Gideon, again, has pursued the Midianites, he's now captured the kings, as he said he was going to. He knew the Lord was going to deliver these kings into his hand. And so now he's, he's got two loose ends here. We've got the two Israelite cities who had refused to help, and then we've got the kings who are still left alive. And the, the text is going to deal with them in that order. So in Judges 8, verses 13 and following, we read, Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harry's. And he captured a young man of Sukkoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Sukkoth, seventy-seven men. And he came to the man of Sukkoth, the men of Sukkoth, and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmanah, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmanah already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson. And he broke down the Tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. All right, that was through verse 17 of Judges chapter 8. So again, Gideon does not forget, as he said he would not, he does not forget the treatment that he had received at the hands of Sukkoth and the hands of Penuel. He carries out the threats that he had given earlier. Again, a uh, this is, is taking us back to that picture of Gideon where we, we see him starting to take things, it seems, a bit too far. Yeah, certainly. Now now he's just out for vengeance, it seems. There's no reason, there's no promise from God, there's no explicit call not only to deliver the Israelites from the hands of the Midianites by means of Gideon, but also to deliver them from anyone who would taunt Gideon, which is really his complaint, right? Um, here, here they are, the kings of Midian, about whom you taunted me. So we could, we could understand, maybe, if, if he accused them of blasphemy, that their taunts are not really against, right, in the, in the way that Moses said, why do you grumble against me? Um, but, but here, his, his complaint is that because of them, you have taunted me. And so it seems more now like Gideon is acting for the honor of Gideon rather than for the, the honor of God and, and the praise and the glory due his name. Hmm. And, and he carries out his threats. Um, he takes thorns and briars, and with them, this little euphemistic phrase, he taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson, and I think given what he also does to the men of Penuel and the threat that he originally gave them, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. I think we have to understand that to be that the lesson that he has taught them means he is he's killing them, killing off these 77 officials from Sukkoth, and then he goes to Penuel and and the, the narrative part of Penuel, both in in the first uh, time we encounter it in this in chapter eight and now here, Penuel seems to get short shrift. But the 
the essence is what Gideon does to the men of Sukkoth, he also does to the men of Penuel. So here, here it is. He tears down the tower as he threatened and also kills the men, presumably the officials, the ones who had denied him uh, bread and sustenance for his soldiers, kills the men of the city. So he makes good on his threat, but he's defending the honor of the name of Gideon and not the honor of the name of the Lord. Hmm. As, we, as we've been talking about Gideon and this matter of vengeance, what exactly is happening here with his threats and then carrying those threats out against his fellow Israelites? I'm reminded of a conversation that I had with Pastor Brian Wolfmuller on uh, James chapter 1. We were talking about anger. And James, as many places in the scriptures do, uh, warns against anger. And and we talked in that conversation, Pastor Wolfmuller offered what I think is a, a helpful contrast, that there's a difference between the anger of office and the anger of person. So the anger of office would be, for example, a pastor needs to speak very clearly against false doctrine, and, and within that there may be an anger that comes out. Or a parent needs to protect the children under his authority, and so there may be an anger comes. So there, there is an anger of office that can be rightly used at times. But he contrasts that with the anger of person, which is where we, we just take that anger and we, we use it for our own good, for our own justification, thinking that it gives us some kind of an excuse to sin because we're angry. And I remember when we were talking about that, I, you know, it struck me, it's very difficult for me as a person to, to separate those two and to, to keep the anger of office in its right place and not let it bleed over into an anger of person, which leads me into sin. And and I wonder if, I mean, just reflecting on that and now with the text we've got here with Gideon, I wonder if maybe that's not something of what's happening here with Gideon. He, he's had that anger of office against the Midianites, but now perhaps, and again, the text doesn't reveal this per se, but perhaps that's starting to bleed over into an anger of person, and, and you're seeing it come out in these rather ugly ways. I think that's uh, a very helpful distinction, that if if in his office, as the judge, he's called to carry out God's vengeance against the, the men of Sukkoth and the men of Penuel, then, then that would be no sin. But he's not, he's not given carte blanche authority to pursue the Midianites and to destroy anyone who would hinder his pursuit of the Midianites at all. So I think this this is where it seems it seems like he's he's moving away from defending the the honor of the office of the judge and and the honor of the one who put Gideon into that office who is the Lord himself um and and moving into um this this anger of the person I think that's a, a helpful distinction and and here it it seems as if he's far more enamored with the idea of just making sure that the word of Gideon holds true than that the word of the Lord holds true. Mm-hmm. Another thing that, that stands out in, in these verses, that we look, verses 13 through 17, and this is perhaps a bit entirely different than what we've been talking about so far, Pastor Himmer, but there's this, there's this note that it, it would be easy for us to pass by, perhaps, but I think it's worth at least just noticing. In verse 14, where Gideon captures this young man of Sukkoth and he questions him, then that young man, it says that the young man writes down 
the names of the officials and elders. So, and again, this is maybe a minor detail, but, but it adds a bit of color that I think is sometimes missing. Apparently, this young man is able to write, and it seems that Gideon is able to read. And I think the only reason I mention that is because I think that we often look back on ages past with a bit of arrogance that we're smarter than them. We know how to do a lot of things, and they didn't know how to do a lot of things. And and I don't think we typically think of, you know, your average young man of Sukkoth as one who could read and write, and maybe not even Gideon, but but apparently they could. And I just, I, again, I, I know it's, it's not a huge point, but I think it's worth pointing out that, look, hey, they're reading and they're writing, and these are quote, ordinary folks. It's, it's pretty cool to see, I think. Yeah, I think that's a really uh, interesting point you make, that uh, that they must have had a, an alphabet and a system of writing, and and as well um, would would also have been able to uh, to communicate with one another, even though on, on different sides of the Jordan River. Hmm. Right, yeah, I mean, that, that's another, I, I hadn't even thought of that too, right? So they apparently, yeah, and again, minor point, but at least just to keep that in terms of the picture that we've got in our mind. So let's go ahead and finish the text. Judges chapter 8, verses 18 through 21 now. Then he, Gideon, said to Ziba and Zalmanah, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmanah said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmanah, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. That's the end of our text for today. So, Pastor Hammer, this is the last loose in. Gideon has captured these two kings of Midian. And he asks them, it, it seems that he's he's particularly concerned with some of his very own relatives and what happened to them and whether or not they were killed. And then for that reason, he's going to now execute vengeance on these two kings. Yeah, and this, this is not an event, I think, that uh, we have described in the text anywhere. I guess we can read into that, that perhaps in their uh, oppressing the people of Israel and their, and their raiding and their, and their stealing food, um, that it also included this this kind of violence that has taken um, men of Gideon's family or, or men that he's uh, closely acquainted with um, at Mount Tabor. Um, and then they reply, uh, they don't deny what's happened, but they, instead they reply with a little bit of flattery uh, to, uh, to Gideon, and that is, uh, just as you are, so were they. That is strong, powerful, difficult to conquer. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. Um, and then they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. So brothers, stepbrothers, uh, in, a, in a polygamous society, it's hard to nail down uh, exactly how precise those, those words need to be. Um, but fellow tribesmen with Gideon and Gideon now swears by the name of the Lord because they have killed those men of his tribe, um, sons of his mother, that he will, in fact, kill these kings of Midian. And then this, this very peculiar thing 
where he tries to put the sword in, figuratively put the sword in the hand of his son, Jether, when, when he tells Jether to carry out this, this vengeance against these kings. And he is reticent to do that. He's afraid, uh, the text says, because he's a young man. So he doesn't have this authority to put to death these, these kings, these men of, of powerful stature. And, and this elicits a kind of taunt then from the kings that if you really want us dead, then it must be by your own hand. For as the man is, so is his strength. So if <laughs> the, the converse of that, if you're not man enough to kill us yourself, then it must be because you, you simply don't possess the strength. So they, uh, they taunt him at the end. Um, I guess if that's a way of uh, retaining some of one's own personal honor, even in the, the face of death, then, then they do exactly that. They've moved away from trying to flatter Gideon now to uh, taunting him, and he takes them up on their taunt, and he, does, uh, he kills them. And he takes the ornaments, uh, crescent ornaments, um, presumably a, a symbol of the moon, um, a sign of the, uh, the worship of, of false gods that were on the necks of their camels. He uh, strips them of the, the trinkets that they might have been trusting in to deliver them from, well, I guess if we're going to try to explain it in the, in the best way possible, uh, to deliver them from the, uh, the vengeance carried out on them by the agent of the one true God himself, and he demonstrates that uh, that their false gods are as nothing. Mm. So when, when the kings fall, it could only be because their gods either don't exist or were incapable, uh, impotent to deliver them from the hand of, of the, uh, the one whose god was actually stronger. So that's what Gideon demonstrates here at the end, albeit taking out some, some personal vengeance against these kings of Midian as well. Mm. Right, but I mean, again, to get that uh, that mixed picture of Gideon, you might say, where the the faithfulness is is not completely gone. He does not seem like he's right. entirely apostate at this point, and and to to recognize that as a, a mockery of the false gods of these idols that are not real, I think is is an important thing. That's a, a theme we see many places in the Old Testament where the Lord very clearly, through an action of of His people shows that he alone is God, and these idols are useless, worthless, they have no actual power, and the, the taking of these ornaments is a, a part of that here. It, Boy, I mean, I don't, I don't know either exactly what to make of the, the matter where Gideon gives his son the sword for a moment to kill him, and the son doesn't do it, and, and exactly how to, how to interpret that. I, I hesitate to say much more throughout all of this, really, other than at various places, you're just you're left with these questions like, what's going on here? How far have they fallen from their faithfulness? Because you know throughout the book of Judges that the people are not being faithful by and large, that it's generally characterized by this downward spiral of sorts, that it, it seems to get worse and worse. And so you come to a moment like that where you want to try to put the best construction on it and see Gideon in a faithful light, and yet you're left wondering, I, I'm just not sure. And, and maybe that's that's part of what we should understand, is that even when we see the unfaithfulness of his people, the Lord does remain faithful. He does remain the one true God. 
Pastor Hemmer, we've got just under three minutes here on the morning for any summarizing thoughts, uh, taking a, a text that you know, we usually don't read in Sunday school when it comes to Gideon and help us to, to see Christ in all this, because we can. He's, yeah. he's here. Yeah, well, so I don't want to be too dogmatic about where exactly Gideon's fall begins or where you can see it. Um, I don't want to—I mean, there is some ambiguity built into the text. So we see Gideon's faithfulness when he tears down the, the altar to Baal, cuts down the Asherah pole, and, and we see his faithlessness on the other side of this reading when he will allow uh, the people to worship the ephod. Um, so somewhere in there uh, seems to be a shift in Gideon. And so we've been largely speculating about where and, and how that happens and, and at what point we can see that in the text. But, but we should also be reminded that Gideon is not perfect, and God hasn't made him a judge because of his perfection, and yet he remains uh, in his person as the means by which God delivers his people from the enemies who oppress him. He remains uh, uh, one who prefigures Christ for us. So even though Gideon is, of course, one who has to have his sins taken away by Christ, the Lamb of God who bears the sins of the world, he, in a way, preaches Jesus to us. And he even uh, shows up in our own hymnody as well, um, in the appropriately numbered hymn 666, O little flock, fear not the foe. We sing in verse 2, Be of good cheer, this is to, to, the, to the Lord's flock, your cause belongs to him who can avenge your wrongs. Leave it to him, our Lord. Right. So there we exhort God's faithful people to do what Gideon doesn't perfectly do, and that is to, to leave vengeance to the hand of the Lord. The hymn verse goes on, Though hidden yet from mortal eyes, his Gideon shall for you arise, uphold you and his word. So Jesus is the new and greater Gideon, the one whom this Gideon points forward to, the one who finally delivers us, his people, from our real oppressors, sin, death, and the devil, and who has promised us that even though it seems like we may be at times losing the battle and sin and the devil seem to have the upper hand, Nevertheless, he is the one who has victory over these eternally. And so just as certainly as the Lord delivered his people through the hand of Gideon in our text here, the Lord is delivering us and has delivered us and will deliver us through the hand of the new and greater Gideon, the Lord Jesus himself, for whose return we wait when he will finally dispatch completely with all of those who try to set themselves against the Lord and against his church. Pastor Jeff Hemmer is the pastor at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois, helping us this morning with Judges 7, verse 24, through chapter 8, verse 21. Pastor Hemmer, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you, Pastor Apple. It's been a pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.